In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This past Friday, the bishop hosted one of uh, several regional events that will take place over the course of the year, something called St. Andrew Dinners. He, he brought this tradition from Raleigh last year. In fact, St. John's hosted the very first of the regional dinners last year. And to these events, the bishop invites priests who have uh, brought with them young men who indicate some uh, openness to the possibility of a priestly vocation. Uh, it's usually about 20 parishes or so, uh, 25 maybe, who are invited to each dinner. Last year, there were 100 priests and young men who attended. I think each of the dinners last year averaged 100 uh, in attendance. This past Friday, the cathedral hosted, so I didn't have the St. Martha duties to distract me as much, so I spent a little more time um, sending out invitations. Probably could have sent out a few more. But over 30 invitations went out to young men from St. John's, and we had 13 uh, reply that they could come. There's probably another 13 or 14 that wanted to come but weren't able to. So we'll we'll bring them and anybody else that you can recommend to maybe the St. Andrew dinner in Warrington later in the year or perhaps at St. Leo's in Fairfax next spring. We were by far the largest contingent at the cathedral this past Friday, and it was a a beautiful sight to see. The bishop gathered everyone for some conversation before the evening uh, program really started uh, with evening prayer and then dinner and then a holy hour and then a reception. But in some respects, the the opening conversation was, was a real highlight. He asked the young men to write down any questions that they might have. And the bishop uh, read through all of them and sorted them. And then the bishop read aloud each question and uh, allowed the priests to uh, spontaneously uh, answer those questions or chime in. And the bishop also uh, participated in the conversation. A lot of the questions had to do with discernment and how did you discern or what was the event that triggered your, uh, your vocation and a lot, of, a lot of the priests spoke. I gave my boring story. But the story that I really wanted to share was that of Monsignor John Selinsky, who was a, a dear old friend of mine until he died a few years ago at St. Agnes. He was already in retirement at St. Agnes when I was there from 02 to 06, and we got to know each other very well. He uh, either really loved you or, or really didn't. Um, and... Um, and mellowed a lot in his old age. God, uh, he was a very generous, kind soul. And, uh, but he grew up with a lot of rough edges. He was a Golden Gloves boxer growing up in Alexandria, Virginia. And uh, it happened that the, the morning after he graduated from high school, he was at home in the kitchen eating cereal. And his mom walks in and says, all right, John, you either need to get a job or become a priest. <laughs> and he didn't want to work, so he became a monsignor. 
Now, the, over the course of the many years and decades, the, the, the diocese and the religious orders that present the priesthood as something easy and fun and desirable and fashionable have very little success. Whereas those who are promoting the vocation as a very difficult thing but still worthwhile tend to have more success. There's other factors that weigh in, of course. Obviously, orthodoxy is a major factor, but that contributes to the trend. And so in the, in, the, in the young man who has this as a possibility on his mind, there are two things that are weighing on him. One, this is difficult. It's also sacred. And on the other hand, I'm a wretched sinner. There has to be, every one of us as Christians have to have a healthy sense of, I am a wretched sinner. What does that mean? What are the limitations of that? It does mean I do not deserve to be in God's presence. I do not deserve to be loved by God. I do not deserve to exist. I can't claim anything that I deserve. The only things that I can claim I deserve are the things for which I'm really responsible for, and those are sinful things. But what are the facts even prior to that? What are the facts prior to anything for which I might be responsible? The fact that God already loves me. The fact that God already freely chose to create me. The fact that God made me with a dignity and a beauty that can never be erased by anything. Those, aren't, those don't come after the fact of my recognizing my wretched sinfulness. They come before the fact of my self-recognition. And so, yes, I am a wretched sinner, but God made me. God made me not just to be good enough or compliant or, or obedient, God made me for something glorious. And it's not, it's not my prerogative to throw that away. So whether it be the young women with whom I'm speaking who are thinking about the possibility of a monastic vocation, or the young men who are thinking about the possibility of the priesthood, they actually have to temper to a degree they're um, being overwhelmed at how sinful they are. It's an, it's an impediment to exaggerate how sinful you are or to forget every other thing that's true about you. We will always be humble in the presence of God. We will always be grateful for his mercy, for his kindness, for his grace, for his dying for us on the cross, for salvation. We will never be able to love God as, as he deserves. We will never be able to return what God has done for us. But in recognizing what God has done for us, we have to recognize the fact that he considers us worth redeeming, each and every one of us. Jesus wouldn't die for you on the cross if you were worthless. In fact, Jesus wants you to desire the things that are impossible. Obviously, not to change your nature or to become, you know, a unicorn or a hippopotamus. But God wants you to desire the greatness for which you were made that you know you can't do on your own. 
James and John approach our Lord. This is Mark chapter 10, if I can read it. Mark chapter 10 corresponds to Matthew chapter 20. It's the same story. In Matthew chapter 20, their mother is involved in this conversation as well, which stands to reason. Definitely sets a a beautiful scene at the foot of the cross where John, whose mother is in the background at the foot of the cross, is next to our Lord's mother, who is going to be at our Lord's side in his heavenly kingdom. James and John have already been in the exclusive company of our Lord with Peter many, many times. And already several chapters ago, our Lord raised Peter to a new level and said, Peter, your new name now, Simon Barjona, Peter, you are the rock on which I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you declare bound on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you declare loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. This has already happened at Caesarea Philippi. Two chapters later, James and John appear to be working to edge out Peter from his primacy. I've always imagined what St. Andrew is thinking when he, of the ten, learned about what James and John asked our Lord. Andrew had already resigned himself to the fact that he was not among those three closest to our Lord in those special moments, whether it be raising the dead girl, Mount Tabor Transfiguration. Later on, we'll see the Garden of Gethsemane. And Andrew sees those two brothers seemingly scheme against his brother. The gospel tells us that the ten were irate. They became indignant. And that makes sense. But notice our Lord's reaction. Our Lord doesn't cut James and John at the knees. He doesn't say, you're wretched and pathetic. He says, you don't know what you're asking. But, but our Lord is encouraging them to desire what is impossible, to desire the greatness that they would not be able to achieve on their own but tempers it, redirects it. When our Lord had the impression in different moments when he thought the crowd was going to uh, declare him a king and lift him on their shoulders and carry him away to Jerusalem, he escaped. He slipped away from them. Our Lord was going to have nothing to do with their uh, earthly designs for domination or freedom from the Romans. James and John have a similar earthly ambition, but our Lord isn't just cutting off the conversation and slipping away. He wants them to be very clear that their following him, their desiring to be close to him, means that they will have to suffer what he suffers. 
that they will have to drink the cup that he will drink and be baptized with the baptism with which he is baptized. A phrase which delights my heart when you understand that prepositions are terrible words to end sentences with. (laughs) Baptism means to be plunged. There's no positive connotation to it. And drinking the cup comes from the Old Testament. That's a simple reference of drinking a cup of suffering. He's, he, he's, he's, he's making it clear to them. Are you going to be with me through thick or thin? Are you going to suffer with me? Are you going to endure what I have to endure? If they are willing to, if they are willing to walk the road of the cross, then, then allow your ambition to be part of your motivation. Allow your desire to be so close to Jesus that you begin that road and persevere. Each and every one of us was, was created for something far beyond any, any natural glory. But even our natural vocations, that to which we will dedicate our lives in priesthood or in religious life or in marriage, has to begin with the realization that what I have to offer is worthwhile. My dedicating my life to something is a significant sacrifice and a beautiful gift. When someone falls in love with you, that naturally elicits a, a recognition of your, of your beauty and your dignity. When it's a celibate vocation that's being fostered, it has to come from something more mystical. Although other f- friendships and, uh, and other relationships can help a future celibate to realize that their life is worth giving up. It's a beautiful sacrifice. It's not something worthless that's being thrown away. But every one of these vocations lived by Christians lead to something mystical and glorious. To the perfection of love. Closeness at our Lord's side. What we see with St. John at our Lord's breast at the Last Supper. And to desire not just to be faintly in the, in the remote background of our Lord's kingdom is not a desire that will help us persevere and endure suffering. We must desire perfect union with Christ. Otherwise, we will fail. And that perfect union with Christ is something <laughs> that he permits us to begin to experience ev- at every Mass in Holy Communion. For some of us, he's, he's making possible what we, what, what we long for. for and, and, and amazingly, for so many others, he's giving you what you don't even want yet. So ask the Lord to, 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 to be bold in what you desire of him. And how close the love you want to experience with him. And when, when, when he allows us to truly be in union with him in his suffering and walking the way of the cross, we'll realize that he hasn't abandoned us. We'll realize that he's permitting us to be truly sharing in his life so that we can share in his glory.
In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.